May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I have been thinking this week about acts of God. I'm referring, of course, to that curious little phrase scattered throughout contracts and insurance policies that neatly categorizes anything bad that happens that we can't blame other people for. You know, like the weather. If you've been following the news, you know that hurricane season is upon us. Isaias last week made a run up the East Coast, leaving in its wake a path of destruction and in some cases loss of life. Already the ninth storm this season, Isaias promises not to be the last and probably not the worst of what is shaping up to be a record-setting year for a number of storms in a single season. And maybe that shouldn't surprise us, given the kind of year 2020 has proven to be. In reading these headlines, I couldn't help but think of this morning's psalm. It is the Lord that commands the waters. It is the glorious God that makes the thunder. It is the Lord that rules the sea. The voice of the Lord is mighty in its working. The voice of the Lord is a glorious voice. It seems that this legal shorthand, Acts of God, is perhaps a little more theologically sound than we might have hoped. For not only is the psalmist attributing the violent forces of nature to God, he seems to be actually praising God for them, citing their destructive effects as evidence of God's great glory. Now, if you're feeling a little uneasy about that, you're not alone. I dare say the families of the people who have died, those who have been injured, or any of the millions of people whose lives have been disrupted in varying degrees by all of this, would join you in finding it rather difficult to see God's glory shining through. As the psalm continues, it becomes even more troubling as a commentary on our week. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedar trees. Indeed, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. On Tuesday, an explosion rocked the city of Beirut, Lebanon, leaving almost 140 people dead, thousands more injured, and hundreds of thousands without homes. But this was not one of those so-called acts of God. Every indication is that this disaster has a cast of human agents to blame. The cause of the initial blast is as yet unknown, but the thousands of tons of ammonium nitrate that it ignited and that caused the massive second explosion that devastated the city were well known. The cache of chemicals had sat there in a warehouse on the docks for over six years, in spite of numerous requests to government officials to dispose of it. There were people with the power and the responsibility to do something about this. This disaster should not have happened, and yet it did due to gross negligence, a great sin of having left undone those things which ought to have been done. The people of Beirut are understandably angry. Perhaps they are even more angry than they would have been if they had suffered from an act of God rather than this human-caused disaster. This disaster gives us someone to blame, which we believe will bring closure for victims and loved ones. 
And we can identify something to change, some system or rule or practice or condition that we can modify to keep this from happening again, to keep ourselves safe. It enables us to feed the illusion that we are in control of our own fate. In an age for which the phrase acts of God is ever more anachronistic, a quaint hangover from a more superstitious past, we want desperately to find some human element in every catastrophe that might befall us. For if the heavens truly are empty, if there is no one to hear our complaint, the world we've been given to inhabit is just too violent, then we had better find a way to control as much of that world as possible. So we invest feverishly in ever new technologies, mercilessly goaded on by our anxiety that our very viability as a species rests in our hands alone. But as Christians, part of our witness to an increasingly godless world is to refuse this anxiety and perhaps to get angry instead. For we do not believe that the only agency to be prosecuted is human agency. The so-called acts of God are aptly named. For there is nothing that happens in this world, whether directly caused by human hands or natural forces, that is not ultimately God's responsibility. We are not the lords and guardians of our own fate. We are contingent creatures, put here and sustained here by God. And so, when we suffer, we are never forbidden to raise our voices and perhaps our fists to heaven and ask why. It is in this spirit that I found myself responding to our gospel reading. A couple of details jumped out at me as I reflected on this well-known story of Jesus walking on the water. First of all is this interesting phrase at the beginning in verse 22. He made the disciples get into the boat. He made them? Sure enough, I looked up the Greek word and it means to compel, force, or to strongly urge. Jesus has just fed the multitudes and the disciples get in a boat to go on ahead, not because they're tired or impatient and don't want to wait around while Jesus dismisses the crowd. No, they get in that boat because Jesus tells them to do so. Maybe they wanted to stay around a little longer and enjoy the plentiful fish and bread, but Jesus sends them on. Second, we read that by evening the boat was far from land because the wind was against them. Why is it important to mention that they were far from land? The indication is that their being blown out to sea is contrary to the plan. A wind strong enough to overpower the skill of experienced sailors and generate waves massive enough to batter their boat has taken them off course. Perhaps the plan had been to stay close to the shore so Jesus could catch up with them. Whatever the case may be, they find themselves caught up in a violent squall in the middle of the lake that has upended their plans and now threatens their lives. This is where I began to imagine myself in their situation and I felt anger welling up on their behalf. Maybe you can relate to their plight as well. Why were they in this situation to begin with? Why had this even been the plan? 
The answer, of course, is Jesus. It's his fault they're all in this boat without him. It's his fault they are now desperately trying not to drown. The text says that it was early in the morning by the time Jesus showed up. The Greek actually says that it was the fourth watch of the night, the hours between 3 and 6 a.m., that proverbially darkest part of the night before the dawn. The implication is that the disciples have been out there battered by this storm all night. They must be exhausted at the point of losing hope. Perhaps you're there with them. You've been in this situation for far too long with no sign of help, angry at the God who has yet to come to your aid, maybe even the God who sent you into this situation to begin with. Or maybe you've glimpsed something that appears to be making matters even worse. Here, in the midst of the storm, deep into the night, you've seen a ghost. This has to be the worst night of your life. Perhaps again, this new development is somehow familiar, somehow strangely hopeful, but you can't quite bring yourself to trust that it might really be God intervening in your situation at long last. Take heart, it is I, says Jesus. Literally, I am. He is identifying himself as God, evoking the name that God revealed to Moses. Do not be afraid. And yet, I somehow suspect that didn't quite banish all of their fears in that instant. Maybe you're with them, in that exhilarating, puzzling confusion of hope and fear, faith and doubt. Or maybe, like Peter, you have heard the Lord and responded. He has called to you, and you've stepped out of the boat. You are now walking toward him, astounded and thrilled by what is happening, until you notice that nothing about your situation has really changed. The wind still rages. The waves continue to surge. Everything is every bit as threatening as it has been up till now. And you begin to feel yourself sink, and a whole new terror overtakes you. Then again, jumping back to our Old Testament reading for a moment, maybe you find yourself with Jonah. You know only too well why you're in your predicament. You have only yourself to blame. The only wonder is that you somehow haven't been destroyed by it. You have sunken down to the heart of the sea, and yet you are still here. Your life has been preserved. Wherever you are, God is not far from you. He is about to reveal himself in the darkness. He is coming toward you though you may be terrified by how he is doing it, or unable to trust that it really might be him. He is there to extend his strong arm to you when you begin sinking fast, even after making such progress toward him. He is there to listen, to forgive, and to save when you have finally come to your senses and cry out to him. It is a frightful thing to stand up here and make such a claim, that God is near, that he is coming, that he will not abandon you in your hour of need. And I cannot appeal to you on any other grounds than trust. 
You have little faith, Jesus says. Why did you doubt? He does not tell us not to get angry. He does not forbid our questions. He asks us to trust him. Why did you doubt? The rebuke is not a condemnation. It is a reminder of who we're dealing with. A reminder that we need over and over again, as we must learn in ever new circumstances, that he is the same God we have trusted before, and that we can trust him again, even in this. He is the Lord of this situation. He is the Lord of every situation. And when we have really met with him and finally seen him for who he is, there will be nothing left to do but worship. By the time the disciples can see that it really is Jesus coming to them across the water, by the time he gets into the boat and calms the storm, they worship him. They recognize his lordship over the situation even over the forces of nature, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. We find them, in the end, joining their voices with the psalmist, ascribing to the Lord who sits above the flood, who commands the waters and makes the wind that shakes the wilderness. Whatever their feelings throughout the harrowing experience they've just had, the suffering they've endured, when they finally come face to face with God, at the end of it all, they worship. Somehow, whatever complaint they may have had, whatever fear or anxiety, whatever doubt, whatever question, it has all been satisfied. They have met the God who is Lord of all things, of all happenings, and there is nothing left to do but worship him. He has saved them, though he has not spared them from suffering this terrifying experience. He has met them in the midst of it and seen them through it. And that is enough. And so we come together each week to meet this God and to receive from him and then to worship him. And we'll be back again next week because we're not done yet. We are still those of little faith the storm still rages. It is not yet dawn. But we pause to worship, even in process. For we have begun to learn to trust. We believe that he is coming, that it is he who is called to us, he who will save us when we begin to sink. And it is he who will take us to that place beyond threat, beyond doubt, where there truly is nothing left but to worship him. And so we pause to learn how to worship even now. Come, let us worship. Amen.